Hey, Jackie boy, a friend of mine just sold some reefer to Matt Reynolds. He's tripping the life fantastic with Tammy Jordan. Contract players, Metro. You pinch him, I do you up nice feature next issue. Plus usual 50 cash. No, I need another 50. Two 20s for two patrolmen and a dime for the watch commander at Hollywood Station. Jackie, it's Christmas. No, it's not. It's felony possession of marijuana. In 1953, a trio of Los Angeles cops try to solve a complex case of corruption. Listen as we chat about the perfect jawline, consulting on Grey's Anatomy, and how much time you have left after being shot in the heart. Then we find out if LA Confidential stands the test of time. Time James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood. Alan says as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time. James and Alan have their say. The movies you love still hold up today. Test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and your name is James Brief, just in case you forgot. James Brief like the James Brief Webb Telescope? No, I think that's a different name. Oh, the James Webb Space Telescope. Is that what our podcast is about today? Because I'm happy to talk about that for the next, uh, you know, 45 minutes, an hour or so. How about this? We'll talk about L.A. Confidential for about 45 minutes, an hour or so. Then I'm going to push that record button. So we're going to stop recording. Then you're going to leave my house and get in your car. And then you start talking about the James Webb Space Telescope for an hour. Mm, okay. No, I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're still getting to talk about the thing, except no one else has to listen to it. I think that that works best for everyone. So the point is we're recording an astronomy podcast right after this. No, I think you missed part of what I said, but that's okay. So the movie we're talking about today, L.A. Confidential, has a lot of big names in the cast. There's Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, Kim Basinger, James Cromwell, Danny DeVito. There's a lot of big names in this movie. Kim Basinger, by the way, is like half of the poster slash DVD cover I know she won a uh, Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in this movie. She's like barely in the movie. It's kind of funny that she takes up so much of the poster when she is a fairly minor character. But when this movie came out in 97, Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce were like virtually unknowns. Kevin Spacey wasn't really a big name at that point either. This is actually the second film with Kevin Spacey that we've ever reviewed. Uh, Can you remember the first one? I don't remember at all. I'll give you a hint. It's based on a very popular 90s author, not Michael Crichton, but the other really popular author from the 90s that every one of his novels were made into a movie in the 90s. Uh, John Grisham, it was a time to kill. He played like this sleazy lawyer. Well, not necessarily sleazy, but definitely the uh, the Southern uh, lawyer who definitely wanted to get a conviction. Right. Yeah. Maybe sleazy. I think he, he might have been sleazy. Like he might have known he wasn't necessarily should have gone to jail. You're right. Yeah. And that's a great role for Kevin Spacey. He was never uh, the romantic comedy kind of guy. Right, right, right. But, you know, looking at this movie's cast, something struck me. Guy Pierce. This guy is really, really handsome. I say this as a straight man, but like he's really incredibly good looking. And to me, I can't help but think, 
why isn't he like a Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt level celebrity? And, you know, to be clear, Guy Pierce has had a wonderful career. He has an IMDb page that many other actors would kill for. But I just feel like, why didn't he become like upper, upper, upper echelon, super top tier level? I mean, he's a really good actor. He's got an amazing jawline. Like, isn't that like what most of being an actor is, is just having a really strong jawline? Uh, that's funny to say it, but um, why he didn't become big is simply he didn't get these huge blockbuster roles. But where did you first uh, see Guy Pearce in, in a film? Uh, what did you first see him in? Because I know exactly the first film I saw him in. I honestly can't remember. I saw him in Memento. Okay. And we'll definitely review that film. And yes. That's, you know, it's a shame he didn't wind up becoming uh, Christopher Nolan's, uh, you know, muse that he keeps going to. Right. He didn't have like that movie that like really could have just propelled him into the upper upper a-list and again he's fine like i'm sure wherever he is like he's doing okay you know he's got enough money and he's got enough fame but there was just something about him that seems like classically movie star good looking there's a lot of people like that. I mean, why just didn't they become bigger than they were? You see it, uh, unfortunately, with women more, you know, they, sure. they just don't uh, get the roles uh, later. But someone like Guy Pierce, you're right. I- I've always thought that about uh, Martin Short. Mm-hmm. Martin Short is big. And yeah, now he's getting a resurgence with this only murders in the building. But he's not Steve Martin. And I've always thought he's on par with Steve Martin. And the reason is he never had those big blockbuster roles. He had his shot in 87 with Inner Space. And, you know, if that film had taken off, I think his entire filmography would have been different. Some people just don't get that role. And, you know, Brad Pitt, a very good looking man, but he had incredibly good movies that he did. George Clooney, you know, a lot of his films have, you know, not been that good. Ocean's Eleven was just exciting. And he was able to get that film. And uh, Guy Pearce hasn't had those kind of blockbuster films yeah 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 it's not fair to compare any two actors really but i'm gonna compare guy pierce and russell crowe simply because they're both in la confidential and they're both australian and you know it was apparently kind of a big deal that they were both cast in this movie what you're shaking your head well he was born in england and his father is from New Zealand. Maybe he lived in Australia for a while, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that was it, that he lived in Australia and he was deemed Australian, even though his background is a little bit more complicated than that. But, um, you know, Russell Crowe has had a great career and he's also very, you know, classically handsome. Also, I keep talking about jawlines. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, in my mind, if you're doing a noir movie and your movie takes place in the past, then it's even more important to have a really strong jawline because for whatever reason, in my mind, the manly men of the 1950s had strong jawlines. What is that based on, Alan? I don't know. It's just the thing that I think. It's funny that you talk about in the past. You know, I do remember the film that I saw him in where he was the headlining star. You ever see the movie uh, The Time Machine uh, based off the H.G. Wells novel? They made one in uh, 2002. 
Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, he was the star of that. Um, and that film was another kind of sci-fi film that could have been a blockbuster, but just wasn't. You know, I was looking through his IMDb. He was in The Hurt Locker. He's been in The King's Speech. Yeah, King's Speech was huge. He's in the MCU. He was in Iron Man 3. Right, he was He was the bad guy in Iron Man 3. You know, he's definitely done a lot of stuff, but you're right. He just uh, didn't become huge. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just spent some time thinking about Guy Pierce today and his jawline. So I just felt like I should mention it. And how good-looking he is. He's a good-looking man. I don't feel weird about saying that. I mean, whatever. He's a good-looking guy. But this film does not have uh, all pretty boys in it. I mean, it has a young uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Guy Pearce, uh, good-looking, and Kim Basinger is beautiful in it. Sure. But it has some of my favorite actors in this film who are known more for their acting ability rather than their good looks. Um, I'm saying that in a compliment, that this is not one of these films like these cop shows where everyone is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, have you ever seen Chicago PD? No. Sarah watches it sometimes. Everyone is gorgeous in that show <laughs> sometimes they'll have the women like tie their hair in a ponytail okay in, in this film they have cops that look a little more like cops some of them are a little more central casting cops but i love ron rifkin you know this guy the guy that plays the da in the film uh no i don't really know much about him oh he's great um i knew him mostly from alias he was a uh, arvin sloan from that film He's in a lot of films. He pops up a lot. Uh, Danny DeVito's in this film. He's great. Oh, my God. Danny DeVito is so, so good in this movie. And I have railed against voiceover more times than I can count on this podcast. But him doing voiceover in this movie, it's fine in general. But there's one part where it's really, really funny where he's sort of like doing his thing where he's narrating for the audience, but he's also like reading an article that he writes for his hush hush newspaper and all of these gangsters are being killed. And it's like, who could be behind these killings? Maybe it's this person who is an accountant and this person who is a thug. And then you see them get murdered. And then he just says, Nope. It was a voiceover for a comedy and it did work. I think in large part due to Danny DeVito's voice. Yes. And also I know you hate voiceovers, but if there is one genre that is almost defined by the voiceover, it's usually more like 1920s kind of gumshoe. Like she was a dame. I had never seen one like her before. They always had voiceover. Yeah. And I think in this film, uh, yes, Danny DeVito did it great. I hope that you recognized it was him before you saw it. Uh, did you uh, recognize his voice? Instantly. Yeah, of course. Right. Also, though, to be fair, I watched this movie on DVD. I got it from the library and it was an older DVD. And when you left the menu going, it was just him saying that one line over and over again of like, on the down low, on the QT, and always, hush, hush. That one like seven second clip is on repeat. And I put the DVD in and then I went upstairs and I went to get something else. I went to do that. And I heard him say it like a thousand times. But also his voice is just instantly recognizable. Absolutely. Uh, two other actors I want to note from uh, the cast here. James Cromwell. I love him. Sometimes credited as Jamie Cromwell. Interesting. Uh, so I like that too. Another actor that I really like in this film is a guy named David Strathern. He's the guy that plays uh, Patchett, the guy 
guy who runs the high-end brothel. Right. And he's kind of one of the bureaucrat guys in the Bourne trilogy. I remember him when I was a kid from this other film that was on HBO a lot. And that's a film called The River Wild. I've never seen it, but I, I gasped when you said it because that's a movie that Courtney, my wife, has said, like, we need to do on the podcast. And I'm like, I don't even know what it is. And she's like, you got to do it. So we'll have to do it. Yeah, and we had seen him in another uh, movie in the podcast in a kind of memorable role. It was in the same era of American history, uh, a decade earlier. Uh, World War II. Exactly. Pearl Harbor? No. Uh, what other World War II movies have it's we seen? It's the other one that we did, and you will totally remember him in this film. Uh, uh, the Blues? No, it's the other World War II film that we did. Uh, think the other gender. A League of Their Own. That's right. Remember, he was the one guy that was really supporting this uh, the, the league that like, yeah. the women should stay. Yeah. So he was in that film. He's great. Also, the last person I want to mention is Curtis Hansen. He is the director of this film. Actually, the director of The River Wild. He's directed a few films that I'm sure we're going to review. Do you remember another film called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle? Yes, I do remember that. I had such a crush on Rebecca De Mornay. Mm-hmm, that film. And also, Eight Mile. Oh, okay, which we talked about with our friend Darren. Hi, Darren. That's right. And you know what we haven't talked about, Al? What's that? We have not talked about what this film is about. Oh, well, we should. You want to? Should I? I think you should, Al. Okay, sure. This movie is about a police department in 1953 Los Angeles. Detective Lieutenant Exley, played by Guy Pierce and his jawline, is the son of a murdered detective, and he wants to be a good cop who puts away bad guys. Officer Bud White, played by Russell Crowe, is a rough-around-the-edges cop who is caught in a scandal by Exley. White falls for a prostitute named Lynn, played by Kim Basinger. Sergeant Vicenz is played by Kevin Spacey, and he's an officer and a television consultant who feeds classified information to a tabloid reporter, played by Danny DeVito. Their stories all come together when they realize that, unbeknownst to them, these three cops have been working the same case, and it involves major corruption in their own police department. So I know that this movie was adored by critics when it came out in 97, and it was nominated for many Oscars that it lost, most of them, to Titanic. But how did it do at the box office? It's actually very interesting how it did. It did very well, but it never went higher than number four. Really? It opened at number four uh, with $4 million on uh, September 19th, 1997, with a $35 million budget. And oh boy, is this a 90s top 10. Or rather, I would almost say it's a test of time top 10. Okay. We We've got number one that weekend. We had In and Out. Mm-hmm. Number two, we had last week's uh, film, uh, The Game, which had been number one. Number three, a film I totally remember. I had such a guilty pleasure for this film, Wishmaster. Do you remember this film? It was Not a Wes Craven genie kind of like evil genie, and they always did the exact same thing at the end to, to fix it in every one of the directed DVD sequels. Um, number four, L.A. Confidential. Number five, The Full Monty. Mm-hmm. Um, number seven, uh, we haven't reviewed it, but uh, G.I. Jane, we've talked about before. Uh, number nine was Air Force One. Mm-hmm. So we've done most of these. Uh, number 10, a Steven Seagal film, Fire Down Below. We've been on a kick of doing 1997 movies on the podcast lately just because I'm a sucker for 25th anniversaries. And there were just a lot of movies that came out in 1997 that I kind of just wanted to rewatch or in the case of this movie, watch for the first time. 
I guess it was a, a good year for, for cinema. Uh, yeah, and this film actually wound up doing pretty well. Like I said, it opened at number four with four million, never getting higher in the ranking than that, but wound up with $64 million worldwide. So that's like a 16 times multiplier. It made $126, uh, 126, not, not $126, it made $126 million. That's more impressive. That, that's, uh, you know, that's a million times as impressive as $126. Right. This is one of those films that I wound up seeing once because I was like, oh, this is one of those films like at the time like Crash or something like, ah, it's not a kid's film, but like the critics are all talking about it. You see television commercials about like L.A. film critics have said it's the movie of the year. It's one of those things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you'd heard a lot about it and I'd seen it exactly once. You know, it's funny that you said L.A. critics love it and I think that this movie is one of those movies that critics love because it's a movie about Hollywood that like as a thing I think can be a little annoying when it's like we just love the glitz and the glamour and the history of this town and it's because you live there it's because it's your industry and it almost kind of seems like it's a cheat like if you want to make a movie and you want critics to like it and you want it to get nominated for awards, don't just set it in L.A. Make it about L.A. Make L.A. a character. I'm making big air quotes as I say that. Like La La Land, like L.A. Confidential. There's a million movies that kind of fit that bill. And to be fair, I think it works sometimes because... LA is an interesting city and it is a kind of a surreal place and it's got this great history. And so it does work. But whenever I go into a movie where it's about LA, I am already kind of a little on my back foot and like, is this really as great as everyone thinks it is? Absolutely. Um, I agree. The one caveat I would add to that is Hollywood loves films about L.A. and Hollywood. Yes. Um, there's another film. I remember getting like four stars and I remember it being a huge uh, critical hit that I don't think I've ever seen. A Steve Martin film called L.A. Story. You ever seen that film? <gasps> yes. I don't remember a ton about it, but I think I remember liking it. Yeah, so we'll see that. But I agree with your trend that uh, critics love Hollywood. And, you know, speaking of like Hollywood and the history of Hollywood, there were things in this movie that... I was kind of thinking, well, that doesn't stand the test of time. And obviously, you know, it's a movie made in 1997 about 1953. But there are scandals that rock Hollywood in this movie where there are actors who, hold on to your hats, smoke marijuana. And there are actors who are, get this, homosexuals. And, you know, you look at it from a 2022 lens of like, uh huh. So that's a fucking scandal. But it was a scandal in 1953. And not only was it a scandal, like sort of in general, but a lot of these scandals in this movie are actually based on real things. The movie is based on a novel, and the novel is based on some real events, and a lot of them have been fictionalized and changed and whatever. But Robert Mitchum, who is a famous actor, he was busted for using marijuana, and it was a big deal. There were reportedly call girls that were surgically enhanced to look like the famous actresses of the time. This gangster, Mickey Cohen, who is like sent to jail, and then there's like a power vacuum— that's real. Like Mickey Cohen was a real guy. And there were LAPD cops 
who anytime an organized crime guy would come in from Jersey or Vegas or some other place into LA to like, you know, oh, take over this racket. No, they beat the shit out of him. It was called the Goon Squad. It was a real thing. And and so that does kind of lend some credence to why make a movie about the old movies. Well, it is kind of interesting. Uh, Danny DeVito's character was also based on there was some magazine called Confidential. Yeah. And they would feed these stories to each other. This is still happening today. Jake Gyllenhaal did a film called Night Stalker or Nightcrawler yeah. uh, a few years ago. And it's basically about uh, getting early feeds on these like car accidents and everything. So you get the first pictures for TMZ or whatever. And uh, this guy is tipping the... Uh, the officer's off, and he knows he is going to destroy these people's lives, but he gets the shot. It's really interesting, I, and it's played so well by Danny DeVito. He's like, when you bust these guys, let's try to make it in front of a movie premiere. So they call it the movie premiere bust. At one point, he says he wants to get the uh, the Hollywood sign in the background, right. uh, which you do have to uh, clear, by the way. I know from uh, my work in television, if you show the Hollywood sign, you have to pay for the uh, the clearance for it. You can get it. They'll give it to you, but you have to pay them a couple hundred bucks. Some of these things that do stand the test of time, they stand the test of time for the wrong reasons, like the whole bloody Christmas thing that sort of kicks this movie into gear, which is also based on a true story where there were these Mexican-Americans who were arrested by a couple of cops. They weren't really doing anything wrong, and the cops beat the ever-loving shit out of them because they were drunk and racist, and that's a big thing in this movie that sets all of these characters off in their respective plots, but it's a real thing that happened, and unfortunately is still a thing that happens and does stand the test of time where racist cops beat the shit out of the wrong people just because they feel like it and they're racist. I mean, these guys are already caught. They're in a cage, and then they go and beat the living shit out of them. Like, so unfortunately, yeah, it definitely uh, rings true today that that, that can happen. Um, Exley, uh, Guy Pierce's character, he is seen as the good cop. Like, he's the good guy, the noble guy. His backstory is that his father was also a cop and had been, like, killed in the line of duty. And he was killed by basically a nobody. And a guy that was never actually found. And he actually just has to make up a name for him. Rolo Tomasi and in his mind it's this character that always gets away with it in the end I really like this character he's not completely good like even in the beginning he kind of weasels his way into a promotion into a detective not in, like in a corrupt way but he, he definitely takes advantage of his uh, leverage he has at the time sure I read that there's an interesting part of the novel that really talks about his character this guy is supposed to be this squeaky clean guy of course everyone young in 1952 was in World War Two, and this guy had been a war hero in the novel. He had killed a whole platoon of Japanese men, but apparently the real story you find out in the novel is that he just happened upon them. They were already dead from whatever, a shell or something, and he kind of staged it to make it look like he was the hero. I like that the character is not completely a goody-two-shoes, and even in the film, he's not 100%. Right. Well, I think that is one of the things about this movie that is really compelling, where it's not just good cops going after bad criminals. These quote-unquote good guys are not perfect. Certainly, that's true with Exley. Also with White, uh, the Russell Crowe character, he has a thing where he 
must defend women. If there's a wife getting beat up by a husband, even when it's late and even when they're not on duty and even when they really just need to get to the Christmas party, he's going to go in and stop it from happening, which is noble. It's good that he wants to prevent women from getting beaten up. But then he also beats the ever-loving shit out of the husband, so he goes too far. So he's like a good guy, but also not perfect. Right. And there's a good reason for this. His mother was beaten to death by his father. So uh, he is kind of progressive. The 50s, he really wants to protect women. On the other hand, uh, there's a part where he punches Kim Basinger in the face. So, uh, you know, again, he's a guy who's not all good and all bad. Right. Um, There definitely are all bad characters. Um, There's definitely a lot of corrupt police officers There's shades of gray. There's a lot of nuance, and I think that makes these characters very, very interesting. Apparently, that was one of the draws of the novel and one of the reasons why people thought that the novel would never be adapted to a movie, because how do you do that? How do you make these characters kind of good guys that you're rooting for, but also kind of bad guys that you hate? And that's a tricky line to walk, and I think this movie does do a good job. It's casting. Russell Crowe is a perfect guy for kind of a brute that means well. Right. Uh, But you could probably rightfully judge him as bad guy, you know, who's trying to do well. Yeah, again, by 1950s standards, too. So you have to put that in there, too. He does some stuff that by 1950s standards, he's a total asshole, too. They're complicated characters. Yes. And let's talk about the third member of this uh, triumvirate of cops, Vincennes, played by Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey is a good actor. He, no, he is a great actor. Every scene he's ever in is so good. But then when you're watching this one particular part of the movie where he's supposed to set up the young gay actor and knowing that in real life Kevin Spacey was known for taking advantage of young gay actors, it makes it extra cringy, you know, like just seeing that I was like, uh, this is really, really shitty because we know about him as a human being. It makes a scene that's already bad and uncomfortable because this poor gay kid is set up and then murdered terrible all on its own. But then with that extra layer of Kevin Spacey and the real life shit that he did, it just makes it that much worse. I think it's just one of those like, that's that's awkward that he happened to play that role. Yeah. But he's so good. Yeah, no, he, <laughs> he, he, yeah he, no, he, he's, he's really good in the, in the movie. His character doesn't get a backstory. Like Exley and White have their stories about their fathers. They ask him at one point, why did you become a cop? And he's like, I can't remember. And on the one hand, that feels like a cop-out of like, he gave two other characters really good, interesting backstories about their fathers. So a third would have felt like one too many. So you just kind of shrugged and were like, eh, who cares? But it also does kind of work in sort of like the Dark Knight way when they quote-unquote, tell you the Joker's backstory, and the backstory is that, yeah, there really isn't one. Why'd you become a cop? I can't remember. You know, I, I see how you're saying it, but I remember the context of that scene 
is uh, actually Guy Pierce's character telling Kevin Spacey's character about uh, his father dying and telling him about this uh, secret name he had made up. Basically, Exley has a really good reason for being a cop. And Spacey's character, he's a little corrupt and a little corrupt based on the level of corruption of the other characters. So he's, you know, he's, he's a relatively uh, minor corrupt guy. It's all perspective. Yeah, perspective here. And the only time you see him really happy in this uh, whole movie is when he's on the set of this show called Badge of Honor, which is a great name of a 1950s uh, show. Sure. He really likes being a cop, but he really loves the respect he gets from being on this set. The actors are all excited to see him. And I think that's the thing he gets out of it. So the context of, I want to be a cop to help people and avenge the death of my father and all this stuff. And what about you? And this guy, like, he doesn't want to say, I love love the respect I get on the set and probably like sleeping with all these uh you know Hollywood starlets he's just like I I don't know I became a cop that's how I saw it I actually thought the I don't know wasn't a cop out I thought that was the accurate answer he can't even remember anymore the good guy reason he did it now it's because yeah he gets to be on set like I'll bet you there's a doctor that's uh, on the set of Grey's Anatomy and probably doesn't work full time because you probably make a lot of money doing that and if you do that for enough shows you could probably kind of forget exactly why you uh, first went into it would you want to be a consultant on Grey's Anatomy or a show like that? Um, I would love that. that. That would be a fantastic thing to do. That's the kind of thing you do later when you're uh, you know, more experienced and have years and years of doing it. But uh, I would love to do that, yes. Well, Grey's Anatomy producers, if you're listening, James is available and interested. Yes, yes. And my rate is uh, whatever um, you're currently paying them, half. Oh, good deal. I'll even go lower. You're doing a bad job of negotiating for yourself. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to mention um, one thing about Danny DeVito. We were talking about him earlier. In general, I don't like the kind of interrogation scenes where there's a guy like strapped to a chair and they're beating him up or torturing him and just trying to get information. In general, I just don't like those kinds of scenes. They make me uncomfortable. I'm a delicate little flower or whatever you want to say. But watching Danny DeVito as the guy in the chair who's getting beat up, that made me so sad. I love Danny DeVito. Even in this movie where he's a scumbag and even in a lot of movies, he kind of plays like a scummy kind of character. He's sleazy. But you still kind of like him. I don't know if it's his voice or the fact that he's short or whatever it is about him. But like watching him in that chair getting the shit kicked out of him, I I thought that was extra cringy. You know, I I thought the scene plays well because it's such a stereotypical uh, tie-up, an interrogation scene. And then you find out there's a reason for that because it's all staged. And uh, he's just being tied up so that Bud White, Russell Crowe's character, can overhear his quote-unquote confession that Guy Pierce has now slept with uh, the Kim Basinger character so that he can be enraged and then go and kill him. And I just, I love the double, triple, quadruple crossing in this film. It's really done well. And I think the mystery of who the uh, bad guys are, you know, it's not led to the the final scene, but I think it's nice that everyone slowly gets double-crossed, even the bad guys get double-crossed by each other and i think it's done well yes i agree with everything you just said but i do have a but at the end the thing that annoyed me about this movie is that i felt like i knew a lot of things that these characters didn't know what i mean by that is there are 
the three cops who are sort of investigating kind of in parallel. And then towards the end, they start coming together and working together. But like one of the cops knows one thing and this other cop doesn't know it. So then he has to find out too. So I watching the movie, like I'm finding out this information kind of twice and it makes sense because these cops don't trust each other and there's so much corruption and there's different people and they hate each other for the right reasons or the wrong reasons or whatever. Like I get it. It's never good storytelling to have characters find out things that we already know. Usually, sometimes you can make it work for a big dramatic reveal, but I felt like it happened a few too many times in this movie. That did kind of irk me a little bit. I see what you mean, but the mystery isn't really, is Jamie Cromwell a corrupt cop? You find that out pretty quickly, that he's a bad guy. I think the mystery, and I was wondering to the end, Exley and White, are they good cops or bad cops? I didn't think Exley was in on it, but I was thinking maybe White is in on it the whole time. Maybe he is part of the bad guys. I'm not sure. Really? Um, well, until you see like Danny Vito's character tied up. That's when I, that's when I knew he wasn't, but... I wasn't 100% convinced that he wasn't a bad guy. This is actually the second time I've seen this film, so I knew he wasn't this time. Or actually, I don't think I remembered. Yeah, I wouldn't have remembered. I didn't remember anything from this film, except I thought this film was about a brothel that had uh, starlets that looked like actresses, which I guess it is, but that's a very minor, minor part of the film. That's yeah. actually what I first heard it was about, like in the 90s. I think because Kim Basinger was the big part of the fi- film promotion, like you said, the poster, yeah. and what does she play? She plays a, a starlet from the 50s. Right, and apparently this was a real thing, and there's like a, a joke in the movie where they're interviewing Stompanato, who's one of like the thugs and he's with this beautiful woman and they're like just because you're with a whore that looks like Lana Turner that doesn't mean that she's the real Lana Turner we know you're not Lana Turner you're just a whore but then it was the real Lana Turner and apparently in real life Lana Turner was dating Stompanato who was a real guy he was like beating her up one day and her daughter Lana Turner's daughter killed Stompanato to like protect her mom and that was another big Hollywood scandal of the 1950s or whatever. Um, Kim Basinger as like the prostitute with the heart of gold. It's kind of a cliche and it is a little eye roll worthy. But I think you could also argue, yeah, but it's a noir movie. That's what you expect in a noir movie. And it's Kim fucking Basinger and she's really fucking good. I think that kind of led me past the eye roll part of, yeah, but she's a prostitute with a heart of gold i don't mean this in a uh bedshell test kind of way i don't think she was in the film enough i thought that her character was very interesting but i didn't know enough about her i just think this character was more important to the central characters and i didn't know enough about her i 100 percent agree it's not really clear why she is really interested in white why white is really interested in her why Exley decides to sleep with her, like how she really seduces him. I mean, I get it. That's her job. But like, yeah, there's definitely some things with her character that are just missing, like around the periphery of of these motivations that is a shame. So all the storylines come together at the end where all the cops have a common uh, enemy of sorts. That is the corrupt cops led by uh, Dudley, played by James Cromwell. Exley and White wind up being lured to this abandoned house and they're being 
closed in upon by, it looks like, about a dozen corrupt cops. There's an exciting shootout, and they wind up uh, holding them off until Dudley comes in and manages to shoot uh, White twice, and he falls down. Right before Dudley's about to kill Exley with with, uh, White's last breath, he takes out a pocket knife and stabs uh, Dudley in the ankle, at which point, uh, you know, they're able to get the upper hand, and uh, Exley's able to hold um, Dudley at gunpoint. This is the point where Dudley's supposed to uh, get killed by Exley after, you know, a shootout and, you know, Exley's life is in danger because the guy holds a gun to him. But it doesn't happen like that. Dudley looks around and just goes, all right, kid, I'm not going to kill you, I guess. He's completely calm and matter of fact about it, looking around at about 12 dead cops, um, one of which he killed. And he goes, all right, so the way we're going to do this is we walk outside because we hear the sirens coming in now, the the cops have arrived. We're going to come outside, our hands up, and we're just going to blame it all on, uh, I don't know, let's blame it all on White. Or I think they say another cop that they're going to blame it on. I don't think he even says it. I think he just says, let me do the talking. And by the time this is over, you'll get one hell of a promotion. And... You know, he is really good at the politics part of being a a police chief and knowing what to say and who to say it to and how to say it. And he can feel that confident because he knows that he's good at it and he thinks that Exley is a goody two-shoes, but then Exley shoots him in the back because he has been on this journey descending into the kind of corrupt cop that Dudley wanted him to be in the beginning of the movie. And so it all comes full circle But he also saved his own life because Dudley 100% would have had him murdered because he's had so many other cops murdered. He would have definitely had uh, Exley murdered. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was surprising that White lived through this ordeal. That was a completely shocking bookend at the very last shot of the film. And I had already come to terms with, okay, he dies. And I thought it was one of those Hollywood cliches where, okay, you beat up a woman. When a, when a character does something really bad, they usually get a redemption. There was a redemption arc that I thought was going to be, oh, okay, he saves Exley in the end and he gets killed. Okay, you know, noble redemption of his character. But you see him in the last scene for no reason, just with, like, a patch in his face. And it looks like Dudley had shot him twice, like, point blank. And, uh, you know, this guy's chief of police. I would imagine he would have uh, shot him accurately. But I guess he didn't. Well, when Dudley kills Vincennes, he shoots him in the heart. And you see that that's where the bullet goes in. And then later on, he's saying that, oh, he was killed by a slug in the heart. And Vincennes has, like... I don't know, 15, 30 seconds to like say Rolo Tomasi before he dies. I mean, I'm not an expert on this thing. I would think a bullet to the heart shot at fairly close range would kill you pretty damn quickly. You might have a second or two. I mean, it's not shutting in the brain and shutting the computer off. It just shuts the pump off. So you're basically, you're now going to go without oxygen, you know, flow into your brain for a few seconds. I think it's it's possible. I don't know. I don't, I'm in like pediatrics, <laughs> generally healthy babies. I do not deal with trauma, bullets to the heart. And even the surgeons, they don't know whether it's three seconds or 10 seconds because they're not operating on these guys. That's true. You know who would? No. Bon Jovi. Oh, because that song Always by Bon Jovi? No, shot through the heart and you're to blame. You give love a bad name. 
the name of that song is You Give Love a Bad Name. There is actually another Bon Jovi song called Shot Through the Heart. Fun Bon Jovi trivia for you. Was that fun? It was fun for me, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, maybe not for you or anyone else, but everyone in New Jersey loved it. Uh, James, let me ask you, do you think that L.A. Confidential stands the test of time? One thing about this film, it's a little bit slow. To the point where I was a little bit bored at a few parts. Fair. That's really kind of my only criticism of this film. Aside from the things I've already said, Kim Basinger should have been in uh, more of it. I think the mystery could have been un- unraveled a little better, but uh, I do like how Exley does notice that uh, Dudley is the bad guy. When Dudley asks if he knows who this Rolo Tomasi is, because uh, obviously it's not a real person, Exley had only told uh, Kevin Spacey's character, so now that uh, Kevin Spacey is suddenly dead, and Dudley's like, hey, who's this Rolo Tomasi guy? I thought that was a clever little uh, way to get the mystery in there. It's an exciting film at parts, uh, boring at other parts. I would have cut the film differently. That's all. But, you know, this film, it's a quote-unquote well-made film. Is this a film I need to watch again? Probably not. Uh, You know, I watched it for the second time now. It's a nice film. I liked it better this time than the first time I saw it. I I think it's a little bit more uh, artsy than like an action cop film. You know, this is not Die Hard in 1950s. This is definitely more of a a subtle film with some action at the end and then a couple parts in the middle. So the film totally stands up. I mean, we didn't even talk about the... uh, awards this thing got uh, i mean it won the academy award for best screenplay uh it won a ton of awards uh the critics choice award for best movie it was nominated for the palme d'or uh it was nominated for best picture for the academy awards best director the baftas for best film direction screenplay directors guild uh, golden globe nomination for best director the only thing that went against it uh, was what titanic which won virtually all of the awards that it was nominated for and LA Confidential only won two Oscars, right? Best Adapted Screenplay and Kim Basinger and everything else, Titanic won. Yeah, I guess so. How can you win against uh, Titanic? Right. Without everything except, I guess, screenplay. Well, it wasn't an adapted screenplay. Right. So yeah, I think the film stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does uh, 1997's LA Confidential, does it stand the test of time? Yes, I think it does. This isn't my favorite movie, But I think, honestly, that's just because I don't really love these kinds of movies in general. You know, noir, suspense, it's double crosses and red herrings, and you kind of have to be paying attention to who this guy is and how that guy works for that guy, and he is blackmailing the other guy and all that stuff. Like you, I found myself a little bored. I found myself a little confused. There was one part where they do like a flashback to Buzz, like who's one of the guys who's a former cop and like oh we found his body and they they see his id and it's like who is this guy again and then they do like a little flashback to when they met him earlier in the movie and i was like oh thank you for doing that because i didn't remember what that guy's name was or who this character was they do that a couple times in this film you see the body of a young woman and obviously it's a naked woman so you had not seen any naked women in this film so it does actually show you an image of that uh, redhead with the broken nose in the car to remind you oh this is that character and it could have been cheesy but I actually thought it, it, it was pulled off well yeah and honestly I thought it was helpful because I didn't remember some of these things the, the redhead I did remember but um, it's a well-constructed mystery it makes sense you understand understand how all of the plot mechanics flow together. I don't 
think there are plot holes. I mean, if there were, they're lost on me. There were red herrings, you know, along the way. There were some things that I was able to predict, you know, having never seen this movie, a few things I got right. Like when we saw that redhead with the broken nose, I was like, you think that she got beaten up by her boyfriend, but it was plastic surgery. And that was right. But I mean, that was a lucky guess because it's about L.A. and stuff. Um, I did predict that the whole reason White was so adamant about protecting women was because he saw his uh, dad kill his mom and that turned out to be true. I was wrong about the uh, the black characters. We didn't talk about them at all, but they're basically scapegoats for this murder that went down and they were framed and it's easy to frame black people and it's easy to beat up Mexicans largely without consequences for these cops. Unfortunately, this shit does stand the test of time. But I thought that the black kids in this movie were completely innocent who were just 100% being framed. And it turned out that they weren't totally innocent. They had raped this woman. Then they were kind of pegged for this murder. They didn't do the murder. You know, it seems weird to say, oh, and therefore they're good guys because they were only rapists. No, they were bad guys too. But I thought that the movie kind of did some interesting shell game moves with the the different characters and the mysteries. I like that. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I thought that they were just going to totally frame the uh, the black guys, but um, they did a little more than just rape a woman. They had this woman like tied up in their uh, you know apartment, and they were just you know raping her over and over. And this woman openly says, "Oh, I had no problem telling the police that these guys were involved in that uh, Moon Cafe murder because of what they did to me. They deserved to." die and you can't from her point of view totally argue against what she's saying right but yeah i mean these guys were not murderers they were rapists and you know did they get the punishment they deserved maybe but uh it involved a lot of uh not uh due process let's say right exactly and the thing is cops are supposed to figure out the truth and what really happened and you can't just say like dudley is saying oh you can plant evidence on this guy because you know he did it How many times have we seen where cops do that because they know something and they didn't fucking know it. They had a hunch. They were wrong. And maybe their hunch was because they didn't like that guy because he was black and they're racist. Maybe it wasn't because of that, but maybe they're just still wrong because they're human beings. And so that's why you kind of do have to be by the book. And Exley is right at that point and not later on when he completely goes off book. But whatever. It's a well-made movie. I enjoyed it. I think it definitely does stand the test of time. And I'm glad to say that I've seen L.A. Confidential now. It was an omission in my movie-watching history. Bravo, Curtis Hansen, and sorry it wasn't released in 1996. Sure, that would have won more awards. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about another movie that is, I think, weird that I've never seen. Hocus Pocus. I know it's beloved. I know people are crazy about it. There's a new sequel that people were really clamoring for. So let's go and watch Hocus Pocus. We will. Have you seen it before? I've seen it once before. Okay. All right. So you're coming in with a little experience. I'm a complete Hocus Pocus noob. In the meantime, of course, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know this. You follow us, of course. But hey, you know what you maybe haven't done? You maybe haven't written us a review on Apple Podcasts. You should do it, and you should do it right now. It will fill our hearts with joy and love. And gold. We are paying gold to everyone that writes reviews, right? Uh, no. Well, maybe you can after you get that sweet uh, consulting gig on Grayson Anatomy. That's right. That's right. That's right. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.